We're back in Mark chapter 4. We've come as far as verse 21. Jesus has uh, spoken, began to speak in parables. He's given them the parable of the sower, and then he explained that to his disciples. In verse 21, it says, Also he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? It is, not, is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So the purpose of a lamp is to make things visible to human eyesight. So Jesus uses a rather absurd example to drive home his point. One does not light a lamp in order to put it in a place where it serves no purpose or where its purpose is thwarted. Yet men are adverse to the light if it is too bright or too revealing. We might say, or just a little nightlight would be enough. <laughs> Nothing to disturb my slumber. Something cute or endearing. Something encouraging. Nothing too harsh, Lord. If the light is too bright, it will reveal too much of the works of which they are ashamed, while they still have an active conscience telling them what is right and wrong, or while they continue to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin. In regard to light, we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we're told, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's a sh it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Over in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, speaking of the role of the conscience, and we're, we're just going to run through some scriptures here that deal with light, darkness. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.2, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The conscience is involved when light shines upon the person. In Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2 tells us that in, the Spirit expressly says that in latter, latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So the conscience is uh, a guide that God has given us, but it can be uh, denied so many times that it's like burning it away with a hot iron, like uh, you cauterize a wound, you know, and it gets, you get a scar and you get calloused. And so that can be the case. So there's this, when the light shines, there's a, a shame and a guilt that people feel. But a nation or society is in dire condition when those who practice works of darkness 
and shameful acts no longer feel convicted of their evil, but parade them as good or honorable. Such a nation or society cannot long endure. You know, it used to be these things would take place in dark bars or in alleys, but now they have parades in the broad daylight and celebrate. The light no longer penetrates the darkness of their minds. In fact, they deny, despise, and attack the light and those who proclaim it as being the problem. This should be sounding familiar to you by experience. The godly response is not to hide the truth or be intimidated into silence. The only hope for those around us is if the light continues to shine. No lampshades. Don't put any lampshades on your head or on your light. The lamp in this case is, is the light brought by the Lord Jesus. The light he brings will reveal all things not yet revealed and reveal things thought to be secret. His theme remains the same as the parable of the sower, but he's changed the illustration from seed to light. The purpose is still to shed the word of God abroad. The purpose of the good ground is to be fruitful and increase. The purpose of the lamp is to give light to all those who are in the house, he tells us in Matthew, and to bring others into the light. In Psalms 119.105, you know this this scripture. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word shows us the way in which we are to go. Psalm one nineteen one thirty says, "The entrance of your words gives light. That is the light of truth. It gives understanding to the simple." And then in Psalms thirty six and verse nine, it says, "For with you is the fountain of life. In your light." We see light. How dark it would be in this world without the Word of God. Without the Word of God, there is no light. There is only darkness. The world would be enveloped totally in darkness apart from God's revelation of His Word. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. This nourishment from the word of God that Jeremiah speaks of. We have a contrast between light and darkness in scripture. Natural darkness is not evil, but it can hide many things from natural sight. And so metaphorically, darkness is evil in contrast to the light of God's presence, which unveiled reveals all things. We know that Jesus came as the light. In John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we're told, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. No man is deprived of the light. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus speaks and identifies himself. He tells them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is the source of all light in the world. John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, 
It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Jesus is the light, the source of all light, the only true light. But interestingly, in his Sermon on the Mount, he also says to his disciples, this is Matthew 5, 14-16, He tells them, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So these good works that the Lord prepares beforehand that we should walk in them, that's a means of letting your light shine. And then, of course, the words of the gospel, the words of truth, or the shining of the light into the world. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul writes and says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, He's given us this uh, light. That God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, Second Corinthians 4, 6. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Later in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, John says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, that's good that there's no darkness in God. He's... He's light, but it's frightening news for a fallen man because that light does expose and it does convict and it brings forth the guilt that is there. Uh, the light can be quite dangerous to a sinful person. Second Thessalonians 2.8, speaking of the Antichrist, says that then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, his word, and destroy with the brightness of His coming, that unfailed brightness of the Lord will destroy, you know, it will just wipe out all the darkness, take away all the evil. Now James tells us, in Him there is no shadow of turning. In verse 6, 1 John 1, 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're to walk in His light. So continuing this theme with light and darkness, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Paul writes and says, But fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. 
For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And then he says this, For you were once darkness. All these things were true of us. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That light that shines forth is related to the fruit of the Spirit. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, we're told to do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 8, it says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. This would be unnatural for us. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this is a major theme of Scripture, light and darkness, and much more could be said about it. If you want to get even deeper into it, you can dig out uh, the message on the website from for John 8, uh, verse 12. And you know, we've spent a lot of time, some of those passages here, but there are others there. And then finally, in John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, Jesus says to them, a little while longer the light's with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This tells us how to become sons of light, by believing in the light, which is Jesus. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And then Jesus says once again in Mark 4.23, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. David Guzik says, If you have the truth of God, you have a solemn responsibility to spread that truth in whatever way God gives you the opportunity. It is just as someone who has the cure for a life-threatening disease has the moral responsibility to spread that cure. God didn't light your lamp so that it would remain hidden. Then in Mark chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, he says to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. There is a necessity to hear what God says and take heed to what God says. 
It's necessary to respond to what God says in faith and obedience. He gives the power to understand and obey to the one who believes. It's important to take heed what we hear, that is, what we accept as true. Discernment is lacking in much of the church in our time. If the name of Jesus is invoked or an isolated scripture is cited, the message is generally accepted as true without checking it out in the light of the whole word of God. Over in Acts chapter 20, when Paul called together the Ephesian elders and was giving them his final message to them, Acts 20 verses 26 through 30, he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, so he's speaking to those church leaders, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, which you would expect. But he says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves, which we might not expect. Then in Acts 17.11, Paul speaks of the people in Berea, he says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. These were, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to them, and they were checking it out, saying, well, it's, you know, other people heard the Apostle Paul and they didn't check it out at all. They just said, you know, away with this guy, or they accepted it. There are many who accept whatever they hear without checking out the message by the word of God for themselves, examining whether these things be so. And because of this, the church is in a weakened state spiritually. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, it says, Of whom we have much to say, speaking of Jesus, he's been um, speaking of him as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. These Hebrew believers were uh, having trouble hearing. They weren't listening to what God was saying. He says, For though by by this time you ought to be teachers, now he's speaking to all these Hebrew believers, he says, um, all of you by this time ought to be teachers. You know, and I think that's true of everybody here. Uh, we've taken in the Word of God, we've learned, we've grown, and all of us should be uh, able to teach. And not all teaching roles are the same. It you know, might be giving an answer to those who ask for the reason the hope is in you. You're, you're teaching the gospel. As you proclaim the gospel, you're teaching. There's a danger in being a teacher. We've talked before, there's a stricter judgment for those who are teaching. There's a danger in being in a pulpit. Uh, there's the danger is from self motivation. You know, what is the motive in teaching? Am I seeking to lift myself up, or am I seeking to lift the Lord up? Am I, because of my background and my prejudices and my personality, am I having a tendency to make the gospel easier? than the scriptures say it is? Or am I having a tendency to make it more difficult than the scriptures say it is? And so we all need 
learning from each other and, and insight into those things. He goes on to tell them, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This discernment that every mature believer should have and should exercise. There's a gift of discernment, and that's not the same thing as this maturity, learning to discern. The gift of discernment could be, you know, a a one-minute or one-hour-old Christian, you know. And many times the Lord protects those young believers with a a discernment uh, that they, you know, they don't really know the Word, they don't know things that well, and so they're encountering something or Somebody's saying something to them, and and they just know something's not right. They don't know what it is. You know, something about this doesn't really ring true. You know, the protection of the Lord with that with that gift. So we need to be discerning as we hear. We need to ruminate upon the Word of God and understand all things in the light of the whole counsel of God. Paraphrasing Spurgeon again on discernment. Discernment is not only knowing the difference between what is right and what is wrong, it is knowing the difference between what is right and what is nearly right. What is another word for the nearly right thing? Wrong. (laughs) As close as it may be to what is right, the devil is very subtle. And his lies are extremely subtle. And I think a lot of the church is buying in to some of those lies, doctrines of demons in the last days, people will depart. How do we measure what we hear? He says to him who measure, you know, it would be according to the measurement of him who measures. How do we measure what we hear? Are we using the yardstick of God's word? Or are we using the yardstick of our emotions or the yardstick of our friends' opinions or the yardstick of popular media, Christian or otherwise? Only one of those is an adequate measuring device. I'm not suggesting that any of us will have perfect understanding in all things, at least not until the resurrection. But that does not relieve us of the responsibility to to use the correct measuring device for what we hear. Charles Spurgeon said this, The hearer of the gospel will get measure for measure, and the measure shall be his own measure. Somebody commented on this and said it, it, it works out just this way. To the one who has no interest in the gospel, the preaching of the gospel seems uninteresting. To the one who wants to find fault with the church or the preacher, they find plenty of faults. There are plenty of faults to be found, as you know. On the other hand, the more blessed hand, those who hunger find food. And those who want the solid truth receive something from any faithful ministry. On verse 25 of Mark 4, he says, Whoever has to him will... More will be given, but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus has said to you who hear, more will be given. And now whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. A person's response to the truth of God will determine whether and when he will receive further truth or not. Light received will result in more light given. 
Light rejected will result in a move toward darkness. In a way, it's like a sliding scale. A person may move along in one direction or the other. And so we have the exhortation to take heed while we hear. And as we saw in James last time, to receive the implanted word with meekness. Henry Morris said, That is, the more we learn and apply God's word to our lives, the more he will enable us to learn. But the spiritual sluggard will eventually forget even what truth he has learned. How do we respond to the word that God has given? Some things will not be pleasing to our fleshly nature, to put it mildly. Will we receive what God says as the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help us, God, and allow his word to do its work in us. If we receive it as the truth of God, it will do its work in us. In uh, verse 26 of Mark 4, then, it says, He said, the kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus now compares the kingdom of God to the planting and growth of a crop. The sower scatters the seed once again and then goes about his business while the seed germinates, sprouts, and the earth yields crops, it says, by itself. This is a word, the Greek word from which we get our word automatic. God superintends the growth by the nature of creation. Now, we don't understand still how this happens. You know, the Lord has done He gives life and He produces life from, from seeds. This is from the perspective of the man who sows the seed, not from the Lord's perspective. The Lord knows how the seed sprouts and grows. Man does not. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3 again that it's the Lord who gives the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. The increase is the Lord's responsibility. No man has the ability to give the increase of the kingdom. And thus he is not responsible for that. But he is also to receive no glory for the increase. All the glory is due to the Lord who alone can give the increase. So a man must be careful to not take credit for the increase, not to take the glory from the Lord. Chuck Smith used to tell his interns and assistant pastors that there were three things that, uh, I'm sure it wasn't just three things, but three big things that you needed to avoid. One is don't touch the money. Don't touch the women. And don't touch the glory. The man is responsible to sow the seed. He's responsible to water the seed that's been sown by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, although the Lord will send the rain of the Spirit as well, apart from any man. But if a man comes upon seed that's been sown, like Apollos in Corinth, if he's faithful, he can bring refreshing water from the Holy Spirit to help the seed to grow. But the increase still belongs only to God. Henry Morris again says, The parable reminds us that the actual subterranean growth of the seed finally springing out of the ground and producing fruit is not the work of the sower, but of the Creator who designed this amazing mechanism. 
It symbolizes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the one who has heard God's word. The human witness conveys the word, but he does not win the soul. It's similar to the idea conveyed by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3.8 when he told him, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We don't know why one person responds to the gospel in a certain situation and another person doesn't. It, the, the Spirit is moving. The Spirit is moving among people. And we can see the effects of the Spirit. All of you are effects of the Spirit this morning. Uh, but we can't see the Spirit where He's going, what He's doing. And in the same way, we don't know how the seed sprouts and grows. All we know is we're supposed to sow the seed. We're supposed to put the lamp on the lampstand so it gives light to everyone. From man's perspective, the seed is sown and the earth yields crops by itself. A man cannot force the seed to sprout and grow. He cannot guarantee its growth or give assurance against crop failure. See Little House on the Prairie. (laughs) Or other farmers' testimonies. I mean, how many times... Were they fighting, you know, the locust or the hail or the, you know? Ecclesiastes 11, verses 5 and 6, kind of sums up what we should do. He says, As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So you sow the seed, that's your responsibility, and then you go about God's business, that which he has given you to do. Then Jesus mentions the harvest when the grain is fully ripened. We will see in other passages that the harvest Jesus refers to is at the end of the age. Once the full crop has come in, the harvest will be reaped. There are two aspects to this. The rapture, where the righteous are removed and the unrighteous are left. And the second coming, where the unrighteous are removed to judgment and the righteous are left to enter the earthly kingdom. That's one of the distinctions that shows us that the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. When uh, Mark 4, 30 through 32 then Jesus says, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? He said, It's like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now the kingdom is compared to the mustard plant. This is an extremely small seed, It was the smallest seed cultivated by an Israeli farmer. The mustard seed is also used as an illustration of the power of faith. In Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? This was when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the man's son was there. Spirit of deafness, dumbness, throw him into the fire and into the water and The disciples weren't able to cast it out. And Jesus says to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, 
and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Just that teeny bit of faith. It goes on to say, you know, oh, by the way, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. <laughs> Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will it would obey you. So a small amount of faith can accomplish great things. The key is the object of faith, not the obstacle of faith. It's not a great faith that accomplishes great things, but faith in the great God. It's not the power of my faith, but the power of a faithful God. It is not have faith in your faith, as the title of a book by a popular word faith teacher says. Your faith is not a worthy object of your faith, but God is. So his will is involved in a man in the prayer of faith. Now Chuck Smith relates his story again when he was a child. You know, he learned to read uh, by reading to his mother as she did household chores. And he was always reading from the Bible. So he's reading this and he prays, you know, to move this mountain out into the ocean one night. He gets up the next morning, runs to look, and the mountain's still there. Yeah. <laughs> And so he talks to his mom about it, you know, and and she explains to him, well, Chuck, you know, God put that mountain there for a reason. He wants that mountain to be there. Uh, when we talk about moving mountains or anything else with faith, the will of God is involved. And so we have to align ourselves with his will. And then when that faith is exercised, it will result in what God desires to do. And, of course, we, we have the... Uh, figurative mountains, you know, that we need to move in our lives and different things. But he was talking about a real mountain as well. <laughs> anyway, here the kingdom of God is compared to a mustard plant, a very small seed that grows into a large herb plant that shoots out large branches and makes a place for birds to nest. The kingdom of God, as the church, had a very small beginning, but it has grown to be very large. There was a disparaging of small beginnings in the time of Zechariah and Zerubbabel. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, we read, uh, He answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is like a theme verse for Calvary Chapel. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. In the time of the rebuilding of the temple upon Israel's return from exile, there were some who had not seen Solomon's temple in its glory. They were too young. And there were other old people who had seen it. And when the foundation of this rebuilt second temple was laid, the ones who had not seen Solomon's temple shouted for joy, while those who had seen it wept with sorrow. 
And those who heard could not discern the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping or wailing. This was a time of small beginnings, which was not to be despised. This mustard plant that illustrates the kingdom of God begins from a very small seed. It grows larger than the other herbs. It's quite large plant with large branches. The most common mustard plant does not grow very large, you know, about this high, about three feet or so. But there is one variety, the Brassica nigra, black mustard, that will typically grow to heights of 3.7 meters or 12 to 15 feet in the area around the Sea of Galilee, which happens to be the area where Jesus was hanging out a lot. Now, this would have been the smallest seed known to the Israeli farmer. There is one other possibility for this plant that Jesus was talking about, and it's called the cardal tree. And it actually does grow as a tree, but its seeds are very similar to the mustard and have a, have a similar taste. But the parable speaks of the eventual growth of the kingdom into a very large plant. This plant provides cover for birds of the air. As we saw in Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower, the birds are not good. They represent the working of Satan, who snatched up the seed that fell upon the soil by the wayside. The idea with the mustard plant is that the institutional church, or we might call it the visible church, would be infiltrated by pseudo-Christians, or as Paul referred to them, false brethren. He was in danger from them, 2 Corinthians 11.26, Galatians 2.4. And Peter referred to them as false teachers who were inside the church, 2 Peter 2.1. These present themselves as believers and may even believe that they are Christians, but they have never come to him in faith that their sins might be forgiven. They have never believed in him. A first century example would be the sect of Gnostics. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but they deny that he has actually come in the flesh, that he had truly become a human being. They were committed to a belief that the material world was evil, and thus God could not have come in this manner. This destroys the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for sin and leaves people in their sin. This was a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Scriptures. We find many today claiming the title Christian but denying the clear teachings of the Bible. They may have an outward appearance of righteousness, but as Jesus said of the Pharisees, inside they are full of dead men's bones. They have never been born again of the Spirit of God. There are some who teach that the birds in this parable are not bad, that Jesus is just talking about the kingdom providing shelter for all and growing in the earth and the world. Among those who teach this are those who believe that the church will grow in a way that the kingdom will dominate the world, and then Jesus will return. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus will return at a time of great evil. We might even say the greatest evil. And he will establish the earthly kingdom himself. During the church age, evil will present itself as righteous and Uh, those followers will present themselves as Jesus' followers. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, The growth of the kingdom will not result in the conversion of the world. In fact, some of the growth will give opportunity for Satan to get in and go to work. And Herbert Lockyer says, 
History proves that the outward growth of the church sheltered evil, and today it shelters many cults and organizations foreign to its true nature. Another undeniable fact is that God has permitted Satan to tempt Job to the extremest limit, as God permitted Satan to tempt Job to the extremest limit and to sift Peter as wheat, in his providence he permits tares to grow alongside of wheat and evil birds to lodge in the branches of the tree. Uh, we do see this teaching of false brethren also in the parable of the wheat and the tares. An enemy sows what we might call imitation wheat in a landowner's field. It, it looks the same as it grows up. He commands his servants to let them grow together until the harvest when the wheat and the tares will be separated, the tares being burned and the wheat being gathered into the barn. And we also see it in the parable of the leaven in the loaf. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And he's talking about adding those things to your faith to build character in Christ, pressing on in the faith. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul exhorts them to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So there's only one way of salvation, and that's through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Paying the price of our rebellion against the Holy God. And it's by placing your confidence fully upon the sacrifice that Christ Jesus has provided, not in any merit of your own whatsoever, that you will be provided that entrance abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Following Jesus' teachings and example will not do it. Church membership will not do it. Being a child of godly parents will not do it. Any other thing than trusting wholly in Jesus will not be enough. There is salvation in and through Jesus alone, and there is no other way into the kingdom of God. Mark 33 and 34. Mark sums up this section and says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So Mark basically gives us three parables here. And he will give some parabolic sayings later on. But, he, you know, he realizes there were many such parables. He just has concentrated on these three that uh, Jesus spoke to them. And you, you notice Jesus spoke as they were able to hear it. Jesus had this discernment. He knew what to say to people at any particular time. Exactly what needed to be said. And he knew what they were able to bear at that point. At one point he says to his apostles, i got a lot more stuff to say to you guys, but you're not able to bear it right now. And so that came later on to them. And so he'll speak to us those things that as we're able to hear it, it's important that we have ears to hear, to receive that which he is speaking to us at whatever place or point we are in our Christian walk. 